Welcome to Vertical Life Church. For those of you that are new today, we say welcome. My name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here at Vertical Life Church. And we have a philosophy at our church. We believe everyone matters to God. And so you matter. And we thank you for spending time with us this morning. We pray that this is a blessing to you, that you have an encounter with the Lord and you walk away changed, that you're different, that you're not the same. And I believe every time the church gathers together in the presence of God, that should be the result, that we're not the same when we walk in. And, uh, and so I'm glad that you're here. Uh, today is New Year's Day. It's New Year's Sunday. And I hope all of you had a Merry Christmas. Did you have a Merry Christmas? We did. We had an, an exceptional Christmas this year. Um, many of you thought of our family and spoiled us rotten. You went above and beyond. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for loving my family. Thank you for loving us. We don't feel like we do enough to deserve it, but we appreciate everything and every one of you. Uh, today, many churches across the city, even the nation, are probably capitalizing on the fact that next year is 2020. And if you uh, know 2020, it has to do with vision. If you wear glasses or contacts, you're praying for 2020 to come your way, maybe. But 2020 vision also stands for clarity. And so many pastors and leaders are using this as kind of the onboard to launch their vision for 2020. And uh, my wife and I have been kind of discussing this off and on the last several months, weeks, and praying through what God's vision is for our church. And just for total transparency, it's been kind of difficult to discern kind of a direction or a vision for this next year. And this is a struggle, especially for a pastor, because the Word of God says where there is no vision, the people perish. And so there's this pressure on leaders to have this, this vision that inspires just hope and inspires people to buy in and say, yes, we're going to root together, we're going to work together and strive together. Because if you don't have this vision, many times it feels like people will get disinterested, they will kind of, you know, wander away, attend another church, and then before too long there won't be anybody to preach to so or inspire. So there's kind of this pressure on leaders to constantly be having a vision for where God is leading the church. And what's always been kind of weird to me is that most churches that especially that have their own building they'll use this term this is where we're going next year if you have your own building you're not going anywhere you're coming back to the same spot over and over and over again you're not really heading anywhere it's just what you plan to do this next year so uh, we're not really going anywhere unless God answers our prayer to open up a building and then we're going somewhere you know and that's one of our goals for this year so there are a few things that, that God has on our hearts for sure. But as I was praying about, God, what is your vision for us this year? What is the focus? What is what you want us to key into? He brought me to, as, as I'm praying, he just spoke to my heart. He said, Isaiah 14, 7. And if you don't understand this about pastors, it is a myth that pastors have the entire Bible memorized. It's not true. Right? We learn a lot by studying Scripture and preparing for messages. I remember a lot of what, what I studied before, but I don't have the whole Bible memorized. So when I heard Isaiah 14, 7, I, like anyone else, had to go look up the verse. And so when I looked up the verse, I remember this passage, because I've read through the Bible, try to get through it every year, at least once in, in, on top of study. But in Isaiah 14, this is the passage that prophesies the fall of Satan, and not his fall from glory, his ultimate defeat. 
his ultimate destruction, where he's cast into hell, and the kings of the world that he brought down, that he used to destroy, they look at him and think, is this the one that devastated the earth? Is this the one that we feared that, that ravaged the earth? And they mock him because of his now ultimate defeat. And so as I'm thinking about this and, and reading this verse, I'm wondering, okay, well, how does this apply to us as a church, especially because this verse is kind of uh, unique. Isaiah 14, 7 says this. It says, but finally, the earth is at rest and quiet. Now it can sing again. So as I, I'm, I'm thinking through and praying through, well, how does this relate to us? Uh, I began to kind of just meditate on this verse a little bit, and if you think about it, it's after the overflow of the, the overthrow of the enemy, where he's finally defeated, that the earth can rest. It's after this battle with the enemy that the earth can rest. And this word earth, it can mean the land or the world, but it can also simply mean the inhabitants of the dwelling, the area that they're referring to. If you know John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the what? The world. Does that mean he loves the actual physical earth? Well, I think God appreciates all of his creation. But we know that that means the people that live within the world, not just the earth itself. So here it says the earth was at rest, also referring to the people of the earth were at rest. They were resting. And because they were at rest, it says now they can sing again. And this phrase, sing again, literally means to break forth into proclamation. In other words, unhindered worship. Unhindered worship. And as I was meditating on this, the Spirit of God really brought me into a place of peace and relieved me of this pressure to try to have this big scheme or plan for this year. Uh, as many are going to be inspiring their churches this year for their 2020 vision. Uh, but the, re the reason why I was brought into peace is because looking at uh, the five years, going on six years, coming up here in April of our ministry, we... Um, just looking at what we've been through as a church, even the last couple of years, the different transitions and pursuing more of God and, and the, the different struggles that we've had, I believe what God is saying is that the enemy that was in charge of that last season of conflict, of struggle, of battle, he's been defeated. That struggle has come to an end. And now the earth, the people, can rest. The people can rest. And not only can they rest, but they now can walk into a phase of unhindered worship, of unhindered praise, to, to go into a season where we can press into the presence of God and once again discover who God has created us to be, to enter his presence and worship him without hindrance. And this was such confirmation because I believe God's been laying something on my heart for quite a while as far as a theme or a focus for this year and because we're going to be focusing on pressing into the presence of the Lord to encounter Him, this is why we're starting the prophetic training beginning in January 5th and, and diving into hearing God's voice and really seeking Him in different ways. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 said we should pursue spiritual gifts. So we're looking to encounter God and to receive from God and walk in faith for God, with God, in new ways. But just being real for a moment... The focus that's been on my heart, Jesus said in the New Testament, he said the evidence that the world will know that you're my disciple, the evidence that people will see to know you're my disciple is the love that you have for one another. 
It's not your theological background. It's not your church affiliation. It's not the denomination you grow up, grew up in. It's not how many verses of the Bible you have memorized. What defines you as a follower of Christ, what will make people say, this person knows Jesus, is the love that you have for one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Moreover, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You will seek me. You'll do my will. More so, he said, Love one another as a commandment. So it's part of being a follower of Christ is growing in love, not just for God himself, but also for one another. And a question I've been wrestling with as of late, and I brought up with our ministerial association meeting last month, I asked them this question. I said, if the community did not know you were a pastor, would they even know you were a Christian? If the community didn't know you had a position in a church, would they, by looking at your life, your love for God and your love for other people, know you are even a believer at all? And it's something I've been wrestling with and asking myself. And we can even tailor this to the church. You can ask yourself, if people did not know you attended a church service on Sundays, would they even know you were a Christian by the love you have for one another and for the Lord our God? When we gather for worship, this is not just a spiritual exercise or routine. There's more going on around us than just the setup of the stage and the ministries and the process of the worship service. The Bible tells us there is an open heaven. Heaven opens, and we enter the presence of God. And the, the hosts of heaven, if you read a, a Hebrews chapter 12, says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that all of heaven join in into our worship. We're part of something bigger than we can possibly understand. And if we lean in and set our hearts free and our soul and our spirit free to press in, to perceive the presence of God and worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to, to not only worship him, but allow him to use us through the gifts of the Spirit to minister to one another, we can experience the tangible presence and glory of God. It's an every week thing we have the opportunity to encounter the tangible presence of God. And we've seen many healed right here. We've seen breakthrough. We've seen people baptized in the Spirit and prophesied to. Yet, so many, like my life, most of my Christian life, gathered to church, we gather hindered. Either because of a more traditional upbringing where you're not used to being expressive in worship. I grew up in a church where the pastor literally said that if you raise your hands in church to, to worship, you're really just calling attention to yourself about how spiritual you are, so it's better that you just don't do it. And it was a negative thing. So we were taught and trained that this is the only appropriate way to worship God, except when we can clap on the clapping songs. And so there's traditionalism that hinders worship and expression and hinders our hearts from being able to connect with what God is doing in his presence in worship. Maybe you're hindered because of a lack of confidence in his presence and there's a fear of being vulnerable because of what others might think of you. Some of you might approach the worship gathering as more of an intellectual exercise and so it doesn't really affect you emotionally because it's constantly intellectual. You have difficulty accessing an emotional place to engage the Spirit of God. Or maybe the most difficult place to be is one where 
there's just not real interest in being engaged in what God is doing. Whatever the case is, I've been involved in the church my entire life. My family was in ministry. I've always been in church. When I was about fifth grade, I began uh, being involved in worship ministry. The first time my Sunday school teacher found out I had a guitar and knew three chords, he made me come and start leading songs. And, and, and I said, well, I only know one song and three chords. He says, we'll do that one every week then. You know, so that's how I got started in leading worship in church. But even though I have this experience, I'm still gaining revelation about what it is to encounter God. I don't know it all. But what I do know is God is here. And he is speaking. And he is moving. And people can be healed. People can find breakthrough. God will speak through you to prophesy over people, to give them divine direction in their lives, to help you discover true spiritual satisfaction. When you're connected to the presence of God on the inside, in your spiritual man, it will also be reflected on the outside. And when God shows up in a room, it's hard to be distracted by anything else. When God appeared in the temple of Israel, his glory filled the tabernacle. It says that the priests stopped what they were doing. They couldn't continue ministering, and often they fell on their face before God because when God shows up in a room, it makes you take notice. And that's why we come, to encounter the presence. Knowing this, knowing what is available, at, at prayer nights, on, on Sunday nights, I encourage all of you to come because we pray, we pray our hearts out and when we're done praying, it's like there's such a tangible feeling of peace in the room. It's so thick that most, like we don't move. None of us. It, it's not something we have to like tell, okay, after prayer's over, sit there for five minutes. It's just a thing. We don't move because it's so tangible that if we move, if we make a sound, we might ruin it. It's amazing to know what God is doing and to be able to enter his presence. It's so wonderful when you worship with all you are and you lay everything out to, for all to see, declaring the praises of God, God can work and move and reveal his presence to you. Knowing this, knowing what's available when we gather together, knowing that God, he has said, if you draw close to me, I will draw close to you. That's not an if, that's a promise that he is here, knowing this, there should not be a single believer in Christ who is not hungry and desperate for the presence of God. There should not be a single follower of Jesus who comes reluctantly to the gathering or even in protest out of guilt or duty or, or eagerly uh, just ready to get it over with because they've got plans the rest of the day. This day should be set aside for God's day to be in God's presence, to be encountering the presence of God. We should come eagerly and expectantly ready to enter the throne room of God where we can find help, mercy, grace, healing, and anything we could possibly need. Before his throne, there is every pleasure in the heavenlies. We come to encounter the one who is the greatest gift, and that is Jesus. So the question I ask myself as a pastor, would the community know that I was a believer if I wasn't a pastor, can also be, also be asked, as all of us 
Christians, would the community know if we didn't go to church that we were believers? We could also ask ourselves, do the other believers in this place know we're believers by how we love the Lord and how we love one another? Does God know we are a believer because of how we love him and love one another? Do we know him? Am I spending time with him alone in the secret place of my own house, worshiping him, developing a lifestyle of walking in the spirit? Am I telling others about him? Am I praying for the sick? Am I walking in generosity and doing good to those that I come in contact with? Or does my life look like one who does not believe? I've wrestled with this for most of my Christian life. I've been in church my whole life, involved in a lot of religious activity. When I was younger, I knew a lot of verses, but you know, I struggled to read the Bible. To me, the Bible was just a book of stories that talked about God. But for me, it was more fun to play video games and hang out with my friends, and so I never read the Bible. I didn't even read the Bible much growing up to the point where I was entering into Christian college. For me, prayer was a religious exercise, but I never really believed that God would answer my prayers. I knew he could. I knew he might. But I never really believed that he would. Or if I prayed the promises of God, I could release powerful results in my life. It wasn't until even 10 years ago when God called my wife and I to come to Michigan for ministry that I heard the voice of God for the very first time. Every part of my life was religious. I went to Christian college, volunteered in Christian ministry, even worked part-time in the ministry. And though I wanted to honor God with my life, the reality was I had no tangible relationship with God. It was all theory. It was all, like, intellectual knowledge and understanding. I, I, I was firm that I was saved because I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. That was firm without a doubt. And I would even have spiritual conversations with other believers arguing about theology and different beliefs. But there was something in my heart that I longed for, this, this just desire and this knowledge that there has to be something more than what I'm presently experiencing. There has to be something more. What I'm experiencing is not enough. There's, there's something more to this Christian life because if there's not, then there's no reason why I should be left empty and alone. There has to be something more, and everything that I participated in fell short on helping me discover what that answer was. But over time, I realized what my issue was. It wasn't that I did not believe. It wasn't that I wasn't a true believer in Christ. There was something more I was missing in my heart, and that was a true, passionate love for God. A love that would break down walls of self-protection and motivate me to obey even when it was incredibly difficult. Even when I might lose everything. And God had to take me to a point where I almost lost everything to discover this. What I was missing was a passionate love that would compel me to seek his presence in all areas of my life, to go after the gifts of the Holy Spirit so I could be fully used by God in every way, in every situation. So I could be the kind of believer, husband, father, and church leader that God was calling me to be, even at the cost of friends and even worldly measures of success in ministry. What I discovered in the midst of the pursuit is that passion for the Lord is only sustained 
through complete and total surrender to the truth. And that truth is that God is your greatest pursuit. God is the greatest pursuit. There is no other cause worthy to pursue in your life than to know Jesus Christ and your Heavenly Father. There's no greater endeavor that compares to discovering the vast riches in the Lord. There's no greater love that can be experienced than the love of your Heavenly Father. And when you get a glimpse into your Father's heart, when He allows you for a moment, just a moment, to feel what He feels, it is life-shattering. It is changing. I think if God let us feel that way all the time, it would end our lives because we couldn't contain it. I've been privileged on a couple of occasions for God to give me a glimpse of his heart for other people and instantly I loved that person like they were my brother or my sister. There was a bond and a connection because I could sense God's heart and it brought me to tears. And for me, when I personally encountered the unconditional love of God, it changed me from just one of the faithful trying to honor God and please God with my life to one who is becoming a fanatic. And that is the theme for this year. To become a fanatic for Christ. The term fanatic means to be filled with excessive and single-minded zeal, obsessively concerned with something. I want to be a fanatic for Jesus Christ. When you're a sports fan, you're obsessively concerned with team rosters, game schedules, and scores. When you're a movie fan, you're obsessed with sneak peeks, previews, and release dates. When you're a music fan, you can't wait for the album release and for the concert to come your way, and you make sure to get backstage passes. And when you get to enjoy the reality of your obsession, it creates excitement to the extreme. When your team scores, no one has to urge you to stand to your feet and shout and cheer. When your favorite band takes the stage, no one has to encourage you to dance and to clap. When your favorite movie comes on, no one has to make you wait to the last of the credits to catch the scene at the end. No one has to compel you to binge watch for hours on end your favorite show on Netflix or to talk about these things with your friends. So why is it that the church has to be compelled to seek the Lord? Why does the church have to be urged to prioritize the kingdom of God and to talk about Jesus with their friends and their family? It's not because we have a faith problem. It's because we have a love problem. The word passion means strong and barely controllable emotion. Fanatics are ripe with passion. They're overwhelmed by their obsession. Spectators can take it or leave it, but a fanatic, their whole life is dictated by the object of their obsession, by their passion. In Galatians 5.16, Paul the Apostle, speaking to the church of Galatia, says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Other translation will say, walk in the Spirit. That term, walk in the Spirit, or phrase, literally means to walk, to go, to walk about, or be occupied with. In essence, Paul is telling the church of Galatia, give yourself fully to this task to be occupied with the very presence of God in your life. 
to let it overwhelm you, to let it be the thing you wake up thinking about, what you encounter all day long, and the last thing you think about before you go to bed. Eat, sleep, breathe the Holy Spirit of God. God is not calling us to be spectators of spiritual things, beloved, but fanatics that are single-mindedly obsessed with loving and encountering the presence of God and then helping those who are far from him be drawn in to that very same presence. To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A great illustration that reveals the conflict that we have between being a spectator and a fanatic really falls in this story in Luke chapter 7. As I was listening to the Bible app this week, uh, I'm in the book of Luke, Luke 7 came on and it just perfectly illustrates this dichotomy between being religious and being a fanatic. In Luke 7 verse 36, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee, a religious leader's home, and to have a dinner, uh, a meal. And beginning in verse 36, this is what the word of the Lord records. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. She knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet. She wiped them off with her hair. She kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and there are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown much love, but a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Here in the story, you have a religious guy, well-trained in the Scripture, probably has been in church his whole life, probably kept a lot of the commandments. And for all intents and purposes, was well-respected in the, the community, probably affluent. And what I love is that Jesus doesn't answer a question. He answers his thoughts. God knows your heart. And he always cuts to the chase. He doesn't beat around the bush. He goes right for the jugular. He gets to the heart of the matter. This guy was revealing through his thoughts what was really the nature of his heart. And you have this woman who had a bad reputation. She may have been a prostitute because that alabaster jar filled with expensive and rare perfume was not something a common working class poor would have had been able to afford. So you have this affluent, wealthy, rich man throwing a party but didn't show any real kindness or affection for Jesus. And you ask, you ask yourself why. He invited Jesus into his home. The reason is because he did not really love Jesus. He wanted to be associated with Jesus but he did not really love Jesus, which is why there was no water 
for his feet, no oil for his hair, and no affectionate kiss. He honestly probably thought he was doing Jesus a favor by inviting him to dinner. But yet the sinner who found her Savior was not turned away but accepted, gave everything she had, wept at his feet, used her hair to clean the dirt from his feet. Why? Because she was overwhelmed with love for the Lord because the love Jesus had shown her. May it be one of the reasons we are not passionately in love with Jesus in fanatic fashion where it takes over every area of our lives where we're willing to give it all and spare no expense to come even just to the feet of our Lord is because like the Pharisee, we really just want to be associated with Jesus. Because we see ourselves a little too righteously than we should. We're not really in love with Jesus. We just want to be associated with him. And we allow our comparison to other people be the barometer of our spirituality. I'm not like this person. I'm more like this, so I'm good to go. I don't need anything else in my life. And because of that, we can't feel the full weight of what Jesus has done for our sins. We can't feel the full weight of the love that he has shown us. There is no greater love than this, than a man would lay his life down for his friends. That is the love that God has demonstrated for us. This is what Jesus has done. It is the greatest love, and there is no end to the love that he's shown. We cannot fathom the full weight and magnitude of what he's done. We will spend all of eternity discovering what God has done for us. We cannot comprehend it. And that same God who showed this love for us has called us to take up our cross and follow him to demonstrate to others the way he has demonstrated love to us. That we would have that same love for him all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and we would love others the way we love ourselves. There's no greater love. But we struggle with this love, just maybe, because our hearts are not truly broken over our sin. We don't see ourselves, we see ourselves like the righteous man, I am good to go. No, you're cold, you're wretched, you're naked and blind, and without Christ, you're damned. Our hearts are still too hard to fully realize the impact of how Jesus loved us. And we're not able to become vulnerable enough to invite Jesus into that brokenness and say, God, take all of me. I hide nothing from you. Take all of me to let him in and let his love overwhelm us so then his love can then pour out of us. The book Song of Solomon was written about a love story between a man and a wife, but all scripture points and reveals to Jesus, and many believe the story in Song of Solomon is really a metaphor for the way Jesus passionately loves the bride, his church, in the Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 and 7, this is the bride calling out to the husband. The bride says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all of his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. This woman, this bride, calls out to the bridegroom, to set me as a seal on your heart so that nothing can get between us. A 
seal is affixed on an object melted with wax, binding both together so that they are inseparable. Our hearts as the beloved of God should be that Jesus is set as a seal on our hearts. That nothing can get between us and the Lord. He has set us as a seal on his heart. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom you also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Just as the bride called out to the husband, the church is called out to the Lord, set us as a seal on your heart. And Jesus has come in and he set himself as a seal on our hearts. He has placed himself here through the Holy Spirit. Nothing can separate us from his love. No height, nor depth, nor principality, no power, no things in the past or things to come can separate us from the love of God. His passionate zeal will not let anything between us. He has removed our sin and sealed our hearts. But the sad reality, I fear, is that we still struggle with setting our hearts, our lives, as a seal on his heart. He doesn't let anything in between us. But every day, we let many things in between us and him. True passionate desire, true unbridled affection for the Lord, it says in verse 7, is like a blazing fire that waters cannot quench. If you and your Christian journey lose zeal for the Lord, if over time your strength wanes and you get to the point where you're ready to give up, if you get disinterested with Jesus in pursuing the presence of God, if you're not just feeling it when you gather together for worship more often than not, if you don't come with expectation to encounter your beloved in the secret place of worship and praise, and you start, you start hot, but you struggle with staying in the moment, if you're unwilling to stay at his feet for hours upon hours and days upon days, then there is a heart connection problem. It should be that we can't get enough, not that we've had too much. The stronger, more passionate love we have, the greater faith will be on display in our lives. We don't have a faith problem. We have a love problem. One of my favorite Christian movies is the movie Elf. And there's a scene in the movie Elf where Will Ferrell's character finally gets the, uh, the nerve to ask this lady friend out on a date. His uh, younger brother convinces him to use the code. If you've seen the movie, you know, the code is to eat food. And so he asks her if she wants to eat food. And she says, yeah, I like to eat food. So now they're going out on a date. And uh, after they go out on this date, Buddy goes into his father's office while his father's having this intense, very serious meeting. And Buddy breaks in the door and he shouts, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. You know, and, and it's quite funny because it's like this super serious moment. But what I love about that scene is that it did not matter what was happening in the room or who was in the room or what was going on. Buddy was so overwhelmed with passionate love that he was proud of his girlfriend. He was proud to declare and proclaim her wherever he went, no matter what was going on. He was infatuated with her. He did not care about what people thought or how awkward it was in the moment. All that mattered was how much in love he was. This year, 
God's placed on my heart is that he wants to reveal Jesus to us so we too can fall madly, passionately in love with our Savior. Fanatically in love. And for some of us, God wants us to fall in love again. There was a time in your life where you were in love, but you've fallen out of love. You let your heart wane. You let things come between you and the Savior. But God wants to rekindle that love. The theme for this year, as we pursue being fanatics for Christ, is falling in love with Jesus. He wants us to fall in love. The way we want to see God move in our gatherings, the way we want God to move in our lives, the testimonies we want to hear week in and week out, and the frequency we want to hear about, we want to hear how God's working in your life, what God's doing. When you share a testimony, it gives people faith in their lives to believe for more, to, to hold on to breakthrough. We want to hear testimonies. We want to know people are reaching people with the gospel and people are getting saved. We want to know when God uses you to, uh, to bring a healing. God, we want to hear those stories. They encourage us. When we don't hear those stories, we can only believe that God's not doing anything. And we know it's not because God's not doing anything. It's because the church isn't flowing with God to do the miracle. We want to hear the testimonies to get to the place where we hear the testimonies and the frequency that we want to hear them. It's only going to come when his church becomes passionately pursuant of his presence and fanatically consumed with this beloved bridegroom God our Savior, Jesus Christ. This year, we're going to journey through the Bible to see Jesus revealed through the entire text. We're going to be awakened to the lengths that he went to pursue our hearts. And I pray in the process that our hearts will be awakened, that God will activate a love in us that we've never experienced before. We can only love him because he first loved us. And I echo Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for me. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make us home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to fully understand, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Are you missing something in your Christian life, church? It's the love of God. But it's not something that's withheld from you. It's something he's daring you to pursue. Just before we close in prayer and receive the Lord's Supper. I want to read something I believe the Spirit of God spoke to my heart this week as I was praying about what He wanted to say to our church. And I believe this is a word that He laid on my heart. It's more of an invitation to pursue Him in love. So thus says the Lord of hosts, I'll be honored in my affliction through many troubles. I have borne the reproach of my children. Now I will sound the call. Come. Come to me, my beloved. Come and find breakthrough, healing, and hope. I've overturned your offenses and washed your stains like snow. I call you forth into personhood, united in harmony with my dearly loved and only begotten Son, the Savior, Lord, Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. He is your betrothed and the wooer of your heart. 
He's coming for his bride in rapturous love to fill the earth with glory and to honor my name. Don't you see it? The time has come, O daughters of Jerusalem. Come to your husband. Adorn yourself in fine jewels, in spikenard, linen, and sashes of fine fragrance. The lover of souls shall come to you and fill you with joy and the hidden pleasures of my presence. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Pursue with unwavering love. Discover the pleasures of heaven and be overwhelmed with joy. I long to come to you and bring you into myself. Let your heart cry out, call out to me, search for me behind every rock, wall, and secret place that you would find my habitation. And I will hear and I will meet you in the secret place where only you and I will cleave and rest in the shalom peace of God. In me you will find strength and the healing for your souls, says the Lord. Church, may we choose today to begin the pursuit. May we let the love of God activate a fire in us that no water can put out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a glorious year. We thank you, Jesus, for every blessing, every healing, every word, every opportunity to gather in your presence. We thank you for growth. We thank you for the grace that you're giving us as we continue to grow. God, I pray for everyone here. I pray for everyone that knows you as Lord and Savior, that has a relationship with you. God, I pray that you would activate something in their spirit this morning. Activate, God, a fanatical pursuit of your heart, your presence, God, that your church would come alive and come on fire, that the light of your Holy Spirit in this place, in this gathering, would burn so bright, God, it would set this whole community ablaze. Raise us up, God, as your prophets, your priests, your kings, your ministers, God. Raise us up, Lord, in every area of this community, this city and region where we're involved in every workplace, God, in every circle of influence, every friendship base, every uh, connection on social media, God, that your presence would be anointing and flowing through every part. God, give us ears to hear your voice. Give us hearts that discern and understand your intention and your will. God, we repent of our sins. We repent of everything that's come before us that's gotten in the way between our hearts and yours. And we thank you, Lord, for loving us unconditionally. We thank you, Lord, for this new year where we're going to receive revelation of Jesus we've never received and we've always longed to know. God, instill in us an awe and wonder of your presence. And as the disciples prayed in Acts 4, God, let your glory fall in this place. Let the anointing of healing power flow, God. And every time we gather together, God, we ask you to show up in glorious fashion. Even to the point that we have to stop the service because of what you're doing. The people are being touched. People are being saved. People are being healed. Prophecies are given that are bringing people into breakthrough, God. That's what we long for. So God, mark us with that word. Raise us up to be fanatics this year. That we wouldn't love pleasure more than we love God, but we realize that in God is the greatest pleasure. And we just come to you now in Jesus' name.
with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. Before we go to the Lord's Supper, we receive communion together and commune with the Lord. If there's anyone here that needs prayer, maybe you don't have a relationship with God. There's never been a time in your life where you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you know because the Spirit is speaking to you right now, you need to receive Christ. You need a relationship with God. You don't know that if you were to die today that you'd spend eternity with the Lord. You don't know God's love in your life because you've never given Him your heart. Truly. If that's you here today, I just ask you to slip your hand up and say, Pastor Joey, that's me. I need to give my life to Jesus. I won't call you out. I won't point you out. I just want to pray for you. Is there anyone here that says, I need a relationship with Jesus? Amen. So church, by your own admission, everyone here knows the Lord. So now I'm going to challenge you to start today, even before the new year, to say, God, I'm going to dedicate this next year to pursuing your heart and becoming a fanatic for Jesus. And if that's your heart, you want to know the Lord, you want to pursue Him, you're ready to go into a deeper level, you're ready to take another step to give God more of yourself, then on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to stand and come forward and lay yourself down here in this first row of seats and call on the name of Christ. Repent of anything that's been in the way of your heart and give Jesus, your whole self today. No more will you let fear keep you from following him, from being obedient and pursuing him. No longer will you let busyness get in the way. You're going to prioritize the heart of God in your life. If that's you here today and you're ready to take that step, on the count of three, let's come together as a church and let's pray. One, two, three. Come on.